Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And this is a big one. It is a big one. A much-anticipated film, and we are finally here doing it. We're very excited. Oscar-nominated 2017 film, Get Out. And it did actually win one Oscar. Did you know? Not for Best Picture, but no. for Director? Screenplay. Screenplay. Mm-hmm. I do think he was nominated for Director, though. I think there were a lot of nominations across the board, but... Mm-hmm. Heavily represented. It's always fun when we get to see the rare horror film that makes it into the Academy Awards. I don't know. It feels kind of like seeing a white elephant. And it did lose to a sci-fi-ish type of movie for Best Picture. It lost to The Shape of Water. Really? Yeah. It's directed by Guillermo del Toro. Yo, anytime I hear Guillermo, my confession is that I think of the character in that Hulu show, What We Do in the Shadows. Do you know that show with the vampires? You talk about this show so often and I still haven't seen it. (laughs) If you're looking for just a silly, silly show about vampires, watch it. What We Do in the Shadows. There's a character named Guillermo. So anytime you mention Guillermo del Toro, I think of Guillermo, the familiar (laughs) Anyway, that's my little secret for you to know and to have and to hold. But we're here to talk about Get Out. We are. And in the spirit of names, let's talk about our ladies. We have Allison Williams as Rose Armitage. We know her from Megan. She is an American actress and producer. And she was Gemma in Megan. She's also in The Perfection, and that is her three-peat of why I do not trust Allison Williams. (laughs) Her three-peat. I don't know that. Is that a show or movie? The Perfection, it's a Netflix horror movie, yeah. We must have talked about it when we did our Megan episode. We did. Is it good? Yeah, it's creepy. We should do it. We should do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Then we have Catherine Keener as Missy Armitage. She's an American actress, a two-time Academy Award nominee for her roles in Being John Malkovich and Capote. But she is literally in so many other things. Like she's the voice of some animated characters. She dabbles in many, many genres. So she's everywhere. Then we have Betty Gabriel as Georgina. She's an American actress, and this film was her breakthrough role. And she has since starred in Unfriended Dark Web. I've seen it. She's very good in it. Mm -hmm. And she was also in the Netflix series Clickbait, which I watched. Did you ever watch that? It's kind of like a thriller. This movie seemed to open a lot of new doors for her, which is cool. I feel like we'll be seeing her as the years go on. Getting into our pre-plot trivia... This film was written and directed by Jordan Peele. Due to the success of this film, Jordan Peele became the first African-American writer, producer, and director to earn more than $100 million in a debut film. So milestone number one out of 70000 for this movie. Peele won the award for Best Original Screenplay, and Daniel Kaluuya, who plays Chris, our main character, was nominated for Best Actor at the 90th Academy Awards. And you mentioned this was also nominated for Best Picture, yes, which is really cool. So Jordan Peele is the one who won for Best Original Screenplay, but it was also represented as a nomination in several other categories. Daniel Kaluuya was given the lead role on the spot after nailing his audition. Jordan Peele said Kaluuya did about five takes of a key scene in which his character needs to cry, and each was so perfect that the single tear came down at the exact same time for each take. Wow. And this man's acting, it does not surprise me that he can control his tears. Everything is so intentional. It's awesome to watch him. But I have to say, every time I see him, I always think of Black Mirror, because the first time I saw him was in that creepy episode of Black Mirror, 500,000 Merits or something. 
The original score for the movie was created entirely by Michael Abels, who had never worked on a film before, but who specializes in traditional concert music with influences from blues, jazz, and African music. Jordan Peele found one of Abel's orchestral compositions, Urban Legends, on YouTube and decided that, quote, this guy could terrorize some people in this movie. He went on to also compose Us, which I remember talking about that soundtrack, especially that opening scene with the bunnies Uh and how it reminded me so much of Candyman. And it wouldn't surprise me if he worked on the remake of Candyman since Jordan Peele had a hand in that. I don't know that he did, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did. I know in this day and age, there are several famous people who have gotten their start on YouTube, but imagine that call. Like, hey, man, I like your YouTube stuff. Come to a movie with me. I don't know if that's how it actually happened, but that's how I'm imagining it in my head. It feels so cool. I don't know that I told you about this, but there's actually a horror YouTube series called The Backrooms that's getting turned into like, I think a Netflix series or a feature film. And it's literally this like 19 year old guy who's really good at doing things in special effects (gasps) and CGI. Wait, I've been seeing clips of this on TikTok. Yeah, The Backrooms. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. That is something I would like to talk about somehow is how internet horror has traversed into film. Like the Slender Man was like a huge fucking thing, especially after the true crime case happened. Literally, it was a writing competition and that's where Slender Man came from. But that spawned a bunch of YouTube series and a couple movies and documentaries and obviously a horrific event. Or even like the idea of those chain mails you used to get on mm-hmm. AOL where you would be like, forward this to 15 people or your mom's going to die. Like that kind of shit. Dude, I remember getting one of those ones and crying. Exactly. <laughs> they are so scary. Everything is so scary. So yeah. <laughs> Our to-do list has grown exponentially just in the first five minutes of this podcast. <laughs> it certainly There's has. so many things to cover. Peel said that the title of the film is also a reference to what he often hears black audiences shout at the screen while watching horror movies, yelling at a character to, quote, get out. <laughs> In this movie, the characters Rod and Andre both say it to Chris, so it appears a couple times. And finally, when Jordan Peele was asked if Universal Pictures wanted him to do a sequel to the film, he stated, quote, of course they have. It was the first thing they said, let's do a sequel. He goes on to say, quote, honestly, I'm open to it. I love the project, but I won't do a sequel just for some kind of cash grab. If it's right, if it feels good, and I feel like I can beat the original, I'll do it. And that's something I appreciate about this guy so much is you can tell he's such an avid horror fan. And I think he knows the science of building anticipation to a sequel, knowing that everything else he has put out since then has been of similar caliber or quality with us, the Candyman remake, Nope, like everything that he's done has been so successful. So he knows that no matter how long he waits at this point, people will show up for a Get Out sequel for sure. And there's something so reassuring about somebody who is determined to protect the craft. Shall we begin? We shall. So we open with a man walking through a, quote, confusing ass suburb, (laughs) talking on the phone, saying that he feels as though he's sticking out like a sore thumb. His name is Andre. You can tell that he's in a primarily white neighborhood. He is a black man. As Andre is talking on the phone to presumably his girlfriend, he says, babe, as he hangs up the phone and continues walking on his way, we see a car drive by him. But then in the distance, we see the car make a three point turn and turn around to trail him. 
So as the car pauses next to him, he audibly says, not today, not me, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. And as he turns around to walk the way he came, he pauses as he gets a few paces away to look back at the car that has since stopped and sees the driver's side door open. And as he turns around to look around him, he is then overtaken from behind, attacked and dragged to a car where then he is put in the trunk and that person drives away and then we're hit with the title card. And a fun piece of during the plot trivia about this moment, the opening of the film is partially inspired by the opening of Halloween, 1978, Aww. which Jordan Peele described as a subversion of the perfect white neighborhood. We get some panning shots of heavy wooded areas, as if from the perspective of being inside a moving car. And then we cut to Redbone by a childish <laughs> Gambino playing as we're transported to a cool artsy city apartment. We meet our main guy, who's later introduced to us as Chris, and he's getting ready for his day. He's doing some shavings, moving around the apartment. We can see that there are, is a lot of photography, really cool prints up on the wall. And these scenes are intercut with our leading lady, who will later be introduced to us as Rose, picking out some delicious looking pastries from a bakery before she arrives at Chris's. Chris and Rose are a couple. She knocks on the door with her head. I wrote, she's so funny, haha, what a quirky, quirky girl. She enters in time to watch him finish packing. So they're going on a trip together. Rose notices that Chris is acting a little bit off. And Chris finally breaks down and asks her if her family knows that he's black. She nonchalantly says, no, should they? Chris goes on to say, rightfully, that since he's the first black guy that she's ever dated, it's uncharted territory and he doesn't want to be chased off the lawn with a shotgun. This is where we get the very funny line that will come back to us many times. <laughs> Rose goes on to say, oh, my family's so liberal. You know, my father would have voted for Obama a third time if he could. Like, the love is so real. And, you know, you're sitting there and you're cringing listening to her. But she assures him that they are not racist because she would not be bringing him there if they were, which seems to make him feel a little bit more at ease. So then we cut to them driving. She is driving them out into the woods. He goes to light a cigarette and she takes it, breaks it, and throws it out the window. (laughs) So instead, Chris calls his best friend, Rod, who is looking after his dog while he's away. And I just wrote, Rod is funny. Rod is so funny. I'm so happy he's here. We need him. We absolutely need this man in more than just emotional ways. He ends up being instrumental. And I love the relationship that Rod even has with Rose because Rose demands to talk to him and like playfully flirts with him. And you can tell that they have a very good my best friend and his girlfriend relationship. They're playfully flirting and Rod playfully says to Chris, listen, I told you not to go to a white girl's house. You're on your own. As they hang up with Rod and Rose and Chris continue to joke, they hit a deer with their car as it is running through the woods and they end up swerving to a stop. They stop to assess the damage. We can see there's a lot of blood on the front of the cars, some denting on the front fender, but Chris can hear from some yards down the road the sound of a crying deer. So the deer is still alive. He slowly approaches the deer who is lying in a little bit of a clearing in the brush on the side of the road and looks on sadly at this dying animal. Then cut to the police being there. They have clearly called law enforcement to submit a report. And we see that the officer tells Rose to call animal control next time for something like this, but not the police. But I was like, you're a dick. Aren't you supposed to do this so you can have a report to submit for insurance? Like, isn't it just more helpful when you have like an official document? 
Yeah, I mean, I just think it's getting across that this cop is a dick, which is yeah. then solidified by what happens next. Yeah, because he sees Chris and asks for his information. Rose immediately jumps in and says, he wasn't driving. His information doesn't matter. This is my car. I'm the driver. The officer pushes again to seize Chris's information. But Rose basically is like, it's bullshit of you to ask that. There's no way you need his information. No. And the officer stands down and leaves. I think it's also important to note here that Chris says, oh, I don't have a license, but I have a state ID. So he does not drive. So, Oh, I didn't even catch that. Well, he lives in the city and he has lived in the city this entire time. And I think that kind of adds to that level of isolation when <sighs> he does want to like leave later because he cannot leave without her. Oh my gosh, this really changes a lot for me. Right. I also have things to say about the deer later when we learn about Chris's family. Excellent. They arrive to the house, the grounds, because this house is fucking huge. Massive. They unload, and there is a distance point of view shot of Rose's parents greeting them both very warmly as the groundskeeper, Walter, watches them from afar pretty ominously. Walter is a black man, and I think Chris pulling up to this massive house owned by this wealthy white family, like, the first thing you notice is somebody of color working on the grounds. Yeah. So, like, I feel like right away he clocks that, and especially because, you know, he has never met these people. He's unsure about what their attitude is going to be toward him. I feel like every detail he can clock to try to know what this is going to go down like, I feel like he would be noticing that and taking in this information and considering what it might mean. And especially after we hear some of the rhetoric that comes out of Dean, Rose's father, he's dressed very academically. We come to find out that he is a neurosurgeon and his wife, Missy, is a psychiatrist. So obviously they're both very highly educated. You know, they tell him about the accident with the deer and Dean goes on to say, oh, one less deer. That's no problem in my book. You know, they're like rats taking over the cities. And I'm like listening to this rhetoric and I'm thinking of Bob from The Hills Have Eyes Mm. talking about his tenure as a cop in the inner cities and talking about people of color in a very degrading way. And I'm like, input deer with any minority group here. And we realize like how fucked up Dean sees things. Because he's just talking about deer, but if we hear some of the language that he's using and some of the arguments and comparisons that he's making, it can be very racist rhetoric. But he's just talking about deer, and it just seems harmless. But we see this recognition on Chris's face of like, oh, you've said these things before, but probably not about an animal, you know? There are several red flags. Or what's that thing going on on TikTok right now, the beige flag? Have you heard about this? I've heard of it, but I don't know that I know what it is. It's like my, and I could be getting this wrong because I sometimes do with TikTok trends. It's something like something that could develop into a red flag, but there's not enough information to decide. (laughs) So like, I feel like there's like many beige flags right now. Like in the first five minutes, he's trying to get his bearings. And I especially really even related to Rose and Missy giving an exasperated like Dean and dad trying to get him to shut up. And I'm like, this is just so reminiscent of women placating old white guys' Mm. dated opinions, like especially when you're hosting company at family parties and like your uncle has a little bit too much to drink and you're like, shut the fuck up. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, it's just like everyone has that member of their family that has really horrible opinions and you find yourself being like, please just stop talking because you don't want it to feel like it's representative of you. But I feel like that was something I related to so hard is just like yelling at my dad, like dad, like, Mm -hmm. or papa, stop, like, shut up. And possibly one of the biggest red flags of all is how they use the word fruck instead of the past tense freaked. Like it really fruck us out. 
Oh. I thought that moment was funny as like a true example of white people humor. Yes. (laughs) 100%. They're so painfully white. Dean takes Chris on a tour of the house, shows him Missy's office. We learn that she's a psychiatrist. She has recently made really big breakthroughs in the realm of hypnosis. He shows him some family photos. We see that there is a son, Jeremy. He studies medicine like his old man. And the dad talks about being a traveler and getting to go to many places. He shows him some more family photos. And there's a picture of his dad, the grandfather figure. Dean fills in some information about how he used to be a really strong athlete, but he was beat out by Jesse Owens in the Olympic Games. And they were the games that Hitler himself was present at. And the dad mentions how cool it was that his racist dad thought he was going to win this race as some kind of superior athlete, but was beat out by a black man. Yeah, and I think this is smoothing over some of the discomfort that Chris has been feeling, especially you know, Dean is showing him all of his little souvenirs from Bali and all of his other world travels. So trying to paint the picture that he's just a well-intentioned old white guy that doesn't know how to tactfully get that across, especially because we do get a repeat of the, I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could. Dean is talking to Chris outside and he's like, hey, I know how this looks because they have just met Georgina, who is a maid or a homemaker of some degree, and Walter, who is their groundskeeper. And he's like, I know how this looks. We're a white family. We have black servants, which is a term that he uses. So again, saying, I know how bad this looks, but I'm going to use this very outdated term also. We're a total cliche, but Dean claims that he hired Georgina and Walter to help them take care of his parents before they died and didn't want to let them go. Chris seems to be like, oh, okay, I understand, whatever. So later, they're all having refreshments outside, and Rose's parents ask Chris about his parents. He reveals that his father was never really in the picture, and his mother died in a hit-and-run when he was young. Obviously, this is an uncomfortable conversation, and Dean notices Chris jonesing for a cigarette because he is, like, tapping his fingers. You could tell that he's kind of feeling a little bit anxious. And he's like, oh, well, my wife Missy can take care of that for him, and this is where we learn more about hypnosis. And I said, to quote another Jordan Peele film, nope, (laughs) we don't need to be doing hypnosis right now. But Dean's like, I used to smoke for 15 years. We can help you. But Chris politely declines with Rose's support. And they go on to say, oh, Chris, we're glad that you're here for the big get together, which is a party that Rose's grandfather threw once a year that they do the same weekend every year traditionally, which I find funny because Rose is like, since when is that around this time? And they're like, we host it on the same day every single year. So obviously... She's so quirky. She's so quirky and forgetful or intentional. We don't know. but (laughs) We will find out. We will find out. So Georgina is coming around and refilling their drinks. And as they are telling him about this party that happens once a year, we see Georgina seems to go into a daze after hearing them talk about the party to the point where she gets distracted and spills iced tea on Chris. So Missy's like, Georgina, you should go rest. And she agrees and excuses herself. And then we meet Jeremy, the younger brother. Oh, man, he's the worst. Such a fucking douche. But before we talk about him, I have to say something that was so silly. Before we see this outside lemonade scene, there's a shot of the house and Walter is outside mowing the lawn. He's using a literal push mower. For, like, the most vast tract (laughs) of land. Like, so puzzling. So we meet Jeremy. Nighttime has come and everyone is sitting around the dinner table telling stories. Jeremy tells a story about a party he and Rose had in high school and how Rose bit some guy's tongue. 
this whole like stereotypical like I'm trying to embarrass my sister in front yes. of her new boyfriend. Yes. Missy goes to get dessert and Jeremy starts asking Chris about sports he likes and he asks about MMA first, which I looked up I guess mixed martial arts. Is that what it is? <laughs> no, it is what it is, but the fact that you had to look it up is I just telling me everything that you <laughs> is telling you guys everything you need to know about. Yeah. I guess it's mixed martial arts. Um, what is this sport? <laughs> what is this sport? I don't know. <laughs> Chris is like, you mean like UFC? So even Chris doesn't really know. Is that like a... It's a division. Category? It's a category. Yeah, it's <gasps> it's kind of like a category of fighting. It's, okay. I mean, I don't really... I shouldn't say that I know. I know nothing about MMA, but I just knew what it was. So I was, had truly no clue. Jeremy asks if Chris used to get in street fights as a kid. Just so random. And racist. And racist. <laughs> implying some kind of aggression. I don't know. Chris is like, I did judo. He's playing it off. He's being really personal. Jeremy has this weird aside about Chris's genetic makeup, mentioning things like he would be a beast if he trained right and consistently. It's very uncomfortable. And then Missy comes back in with the dessert. Jeremy is still on the topic of fighting. He mentions jujitsu now. He's saying the thing about jujitsu is being there four moves ahead. And he gets up and challenges Chris to a fight right there. (laughs) Okay. And Chris, of course, declines. And then Missy speaks up and confirms this must cease. So very weird. And also something I noticed about Jeremy is he looks like there's something about him that feels very like Confederate soldier. Mm, like the, the way he's dressed. The way he's dressed and his mustache, like his facial hair, even the look of his face. I don't know. Something about him evoked like Confederate soldier for me. But yeah, he's like, I wasn't going to hurt him and then slinks off with the bottle. You can tell he has a little bit of a substance problem. Mm-hmm. So later, Rose is in the bedroom brushing her teeth while Chris is on his computer and is reacting in disbelief about how her family is acting. She's like, oh my God, Jeremy was going to put you in a headlock and he's never treated any of my boyfriends that way. And what's my dad with my man stuff? He keeps saying my man, my man. He's never said that once in his life. And the entire time Chris is like nodding and mm-hmm, yep, wow. Being like he very much expected this type of reaction while I wrote Rose is acting white woman shell-shocked. Like the fact that it's like, I just can't believe that people are still prejudiced in this day and age. <laughs> like you could just see, like there's the white man monologue and then there's the white woman shell-shocked. They are sister reactions, and that's what's happening right now. So Rose is apologetic while Chris is comforting and very much downplaying his discomfort. He's like, this isn't even that bad, which is saying something based on how uncomfortable he's been made to feel so much. He's pushing his discomfort to the side for the sake of trying to make good with her family and make a good impression. They've only been dating for five months, so he wants to be able to ingratiate himself very well. Rose is complaining about how her family is so white and tomorrow's only going to be worse because they're even more white, the people that they're going to be meeting. And I had mentioned this to Elise prior to recording. I'm like, not to compare experiences because obviously they're very different, but being a queer person and being a queer person who has dated women who may not have dated women before me before, (laughs) I've had this same conversation that Chris has had with Rose about like, now does your family know? Or like, (laughs) is your family like aware that I dress like XYZ? Or is your family expecting this? Like, have you had these talks with them? 
And I've received very nonchalant responses of like, oh no, it's fine. Like, it's just like a non-issue. But then you go to these family functions and you get these types of questions that Chris is getting the next day in this next scene that we're going to have. And it's like, they don't anticipate that there's so much mental preparation that you have to do to go into a space where you're expecting everyone to be discomforted by the fact that you're even there. And the person who is at the focal point of that isn't even aware of it a lot Mm. of the time. So Mm -hmm. I just thought it was a very interesting experience where I could obviously not in the same way to the same degree, but like relate to Chris in that, oh, you were shocked? (laughs) You didn't think about this? Not surprising. Mm -hmm. But he does, like you said, put those feelings aside. He tells Rose it's okay and they have a cute little makeout. So they're moving along. That night, Chris is dreaming about the deer in the brush when he suddenly wakes up and eyes his cigarettes. So he grabs them and goes outside for a smoke. I'm going to stop you Mm -hmm. and talk about the deer thing. Okay. Bambi. He is Bambi. He was left alone in the (gasps) woods while his mom went off and died and never came back. It's very Bambi to me. That's exactly what I took out of it. Especially like there's no coincidence that they hit a deer. They could have hit anything. I mean, I know there's a lot of deer. Hitting deer is very common in these parts, at least. I was kind of wondering why a deer. That makes so much sense. Bambi is so troubling. Yeah. So emotionally dense. And the fact that his mother was killed in a hit and run. They hit the deer. Oh, my God. Very traumatic for him. And obviously, we don't realize it in that initial scene. But then once we learn what happens to his mother, and he feels the need to go and be with that deer when she dies. And it remains a theme. And it's a doe. It is a doe. I'm really thinking about so many things differently now. There's so many things. That's why I love these conversations. I know, know, right? There's so many things I'm thinking. I'm also thinking back to the rabbits again and us. Like, this presence of these animals and, like, the symbolism or meaning or cultural use of these animals. Like, it's awesome. Fucking Jordan Peele, man. Fucking Jordan Peele. So, outside for a smoke. And it looks like Georgina is also awake. We have this spooky moment where we see Chris walking toward the camera in the hallway, but we see Georgina, like, move in the perpendicular hallway behind him, which is very spooky. She's very ghost-like in that moment. But Chris makes it outside, and as he's standing there smoking, he sees somebody running toward him (laughs) full speed from the tree line. And as the man gets closer, we see that it's Walter. Chris is stunned still. He doesn't know what to do. And right when Walter gets close enough to Chris, he quickly pivots away and continues running in the other direction. Do you remember the get out challenge? Something is happening in my head. That was like a thing that people did on Vine or something. Obviously not TikTok because it was too early, but they would go running full speed at someone and see how quickly they could pivot before like hitting the person that was there. (laughs) That is ringing bells, but no, I I can't say that I can truly place that. But But yes. It was a thing. It became a meme. Oh my God. I bet there were a lot of injuries. Yes. (laughs) Lots of crash and burns. (laughs) While Chris is outside, he looks up to a window and sees Georgina is inside looking at her reflection in the window, checking out her hair, fixing her face. And Chris is, again, probably thinking that these people are acting really strange because they are. He heads back inside and sees that Missy is awake, sitting in her study. She teases him about being outside for smoking and asks him to come and sit down. So he does, and they start chatting about hypnosis. And she asks him again if he's interested in being hypnotized into quitting his addiction, but he declines. But then she starts asking him a bunch of questions about where he was when his mother died. Very quickly, the topic turns quite serious. 
the entire time she's stirring her tea in a teacup because mm-hmm. he had even joked like oh what is it you're going to take out a pocket watch and swing it in front of my face but we come to find out in the circular motion this is her form of hypnosis mm-hmm. the clinking the consistent clinking so as she's answering questions paired again with that consistent stirring sound of the tea chris is already being hypnotized before he even realizes what's happening So as Chris is answering questions about what he remembers about the night his mother died, he starts by saying he remembers that it was raining. Missy encourages him to find the sound of the rain and he sinks further into his memory. And we start seeing a flashback now of a little boy sitting on a bed. And we can see Chris, grown Chris, is growing extremely tired as the session continues, like heavy eyelids, limp posture, like he is descending. So as Missy is questioning him, she's like, okay, listen to the rain. What did you do? He's like, I didn't do anything. Well, what did you do? He's like, I just sat there. Why didn't you call somebody? It's very victim blaming the way that she's asking the questions. Especially because the mother wasn't home. Chris realized she wasn't home, but was just waiting for her. Like, it just feels very like, what was he supposed to do? He was a little kid, probably just waiting for his mom to come home. Yeah. And she was like, so you just sat there? And he said, I didn't call somebody because I thought if I called somebody, it would make it real. There's mirrored shots of him as a kid scratching at his bedpost with anxiety and then him scratching the chair in the present. So there's a lot of him feeling what he was feeling in that moment. And she's like, well, how do you feel now? And he's like, I can't move. And she's like, you're paralyzed, just like the day that you sat there and did nothing. Again, very victim blamey, especially in comparison to the way that we see Rose talk to him later about the situation. Then she says, now sink into the floor. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. And she says, sink. And then we see in the flashback, the boy sink into his bed, Nightmare on Elm Street style, Mm. a la Johnny Depp. And then we see him in the present fall through the chair. And this is that Florence Pugh scene that I was like, oh my gosh, this is the sunken place where she, you could tell like, and don't worry, darling, she's falling through and she's drowning underwater. But with him, he's almost falling through space. Like Mm -hmm. it's very much just this abyss, this darkness that has no start or end. And he ends up straightening up toward the bottom and looks up very much like he's at the bottom of a well is what it looks like. Missy then leans in front of him in the present and we're seeing Chris. His mouth is agape. He's crying. He's wide eyed. And she says, now you're in the sunken place and then closes his eyes for him. And then he wakes up as if it was all a nightmare. This must be his audition scene. It must be. It's also, I think, a visual that's very often paired with conversations about this movie, like him in the chair, in the sunken place. It's so recognizable. And you were even saying his acting in this scene. He's acting with everything that he is. I don't have enough like sophistication or enough of a vocabulary to really explain like what it's like watching him act. He has the subtlest movements. It really feels like you're watching a real person in real time experience this. It doesn't even look like he's an actor acting. It looks like he's just a person experiencing. I can see why he would get this role on the spot. And why he earned the Oscar nomination. Yeah, for best actor. Like, I am so excited to see he has to get that Oscar one day for some role in the future. He's so talented. So as Chris wakes up, he notices that his phone is unplugged. So he plugs his phone back in and then decides to go outside and take some photos in the woods. And as he's returning to the house, he sees Georgina in the window again. So he's looking through his viewfinder and kind of uses his viewfinder to like zoom in on her. But she catches him spying on her. He instead then sees Walter splitting wood, so he approaches him to introduce himself. And when he does introduce himself, Walter is speaking very unnaturally. He's speaking very much like an aristocrat, where it's like how Walter is dressed and characterized and the voice that comes out of him do not match each other. 
And that's not to say anything about vernacular or anything of that degree, but it just is an unnatural pairing of Walter's voice pattern and how he is presenting himself. His speech is very antiquated as well. Like, he's clearly a young man, but he sounds like he's from 1942. Well, he asks how things are with Rose, and he's like, oh, Rose, one of a kind, top of the line, a real doggone keeper. Yeah. Like, like no 25-year-old is saying, (laughs) doggone keeper. keeper. (laughs) At least seriously. And then Walter goes on to apologize to Chris for scaring him during his exercise the night before and asks if it worked since he saw that he was in Missy's office for some time last night. And then breaks off the conversation saying that he needs to get back to work. Chris is made very uncomfortable by this interaction because I think up until that point, he assumed the entire interaction with Missy was a dream and he is getting external confirmation that he was indeed in Missy's office for some time. Later, Chris is upstairs in the room he's sharing with Rose and tells her that he thinks Missy hypnotized him. He talks about his dream of falling into the sunken place. She cuts him off. She doesn't let him talk about it for very much. Yeah, I wrote she's a mess, cutting him off a little bit like sporadic, kind of all over the place. And just then the whole party arrives for this annual extravaganza. I also noted that as the family arrives, it looks like a funeral procession because it's all black cars. Mm -hmm. And they all like have that weird elongated hearse look to them. And we just get this montage of white people being white people. There's this one old man, Gordon, that says he used to golf and then makes a note to say that he knew Tiger Woods. We (laughs) have a horny housewife Mm. that like feels Chris's biceps and asks Rose, so is it true? Is it better? Oh my gosh. And then we have another old couple telling him that black is in fashion now. The pendulum is swinging the other way. And they're all kind of like grinning and grimacing through these interactions. And I noted how funny it was that Rose had no problem putting a police officer in his place. But when it's friends and family, all of a sudden we get a little less brave. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I feel like that's a lot of the college experience, too. You're learning things and you become much more accustomed to being open with your opinions. But for some reason, correcting your uncle at the Thanksgiving dinner table like feels like something that's just a lot harder to do. And we don't see that same level of bravery from Rose that we did earlier in the film. Yeah. And Chris, rightfully so, gets tired of all the nonsense and weirdness. So he grabs his camera and starts looking around to take some photographs. He's by the refreshment table and he notices a black man who's kind of making some strange movements, also dressed in antiquated clothes. But Chris goes to talk to him and he says something along the lines of like, it's nice to see you here. We're the only two black guys. He says it's nice to have another brother around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This guy, much like we saw with Walter and Georgina, is acting in that same funky way where his speech is very antiquated. He's overly... It's like 1950s manners. It's like, yeah, like a kind lot of, like of eagerness. Yeah. Like this unnatural eagerness. And a woman comes and joins him. A much older woman. A much older woman. She starts talking to this man. His name is Logan. In the lovey-dovey way, we get the sense that they are together romantically. And they leave Chris feeling more confused than ever. So he wanders off and ends up meeting this man named Jim Hudson. He is a blind art dealer who Chris is actually familiar with. Jim says that he's actually a fan of Chris's work. There's some humor about being a blind art dealer, but Jim ends up revealing that he lost his vision after trying to be a photographer and then deciding to be an art dealer. And having this kind of conversation makes Chris feel a little bit more at ease because Jim also calls out about how pretentious everybody else is being around them, where he seems to be a little bit more down to earth. 
We have a scene that's very similar to The Step of Wives, where Chris goes inside and goes upstairs, and as he rises the stairs, all of the chatter in the living room just stops, and they all look upstairs to wonder what he's doing. So this is our first real confirmation that we're getting that something's up. Yeah. In The Stepford Wives, that scene is used to show that those men are in Joanna's house to look at Joanna, paralleled with the scene. It's like, these people are at this party to look at Chris. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that parallel is establishing that reality. He's upstairs and notices that his phone he left on the nightstand is unplugged again. Rose comes in shortly after and he tells her that he thinks Georgina unplugged his phone I feel like the scene doesn't last very long. She ends up leaving. Well, it's because Chris says something along the lines of, I don't think Georgina likes that I'm with you and says it's a thing, insinuating that Georgina isn't supportive of Chris dating a white woman. I think Rose says something along the lines of, oh, you're saying you're too hot that she had to unplug your phone. Like, like she's not taking it seriously. And he kind of just is like, all right, get the fuck away from me then. Like, I'm trying to express this to you. And they argue and she storms off. Chris instead calls Rod to tell him about the hypnosis and Rod is delivering the much needed comic relief that we need in this movie. (laughs) Warns him that white people love to make other people sex slaves and shit. Look at Jeffrey Dahmer. And there's a lot of crude (laughs) conversation about Jeffrey Dahmer, obviously his crimes against young black men and being like, that's you, man. You're you're gonna be Jeffrey Dahmer. And, you know, they're laughing. And it's a very funny scene despite the very morbid context. And Rod, again, suggests that Missy is hypnotizing them to go fuck them. (laughs) It's just, uh, like, it's not funny because obviously that's horrible. But at the same time, it's a lot of comic relief that we need. It is, but it's also, like, so on the nose. Even though it sounds so extreme, as the movie continues, we realize that Rod is a little bit more right than he might have ever initially imagined. And I think it's also inadvertently speaking to a lot of the over-sexualization of Black men. Like, even earlier in the party with the horny housewife being like, is it true? Is it better? And, you know, Rod, in his colloquial way, is pretty much saying like, no, they only see you as something that you can provide for them. Like, they're Mm going to make sure they get what they want from you. Again, he doesn't know how right he is, just in a different direction. Just then, Georgina appears in the doorway of the bedroom and apologizes for leaving Chris's phone unplugged. He says it's fine. But then as she continues this conversation, she starts to cry. Like, she's still maintaining this really large smile and wide-eyed facial expression, but she has tears streaming down her cheeks There's clearly some kind of dissonance between some kind of internal emotion and the expression she's wearing on her face. Because Chris says, sometimes when too many white people are around, I get nervous. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that there's something inside of her that wants to agree with him. And it's like the mask and the inside are fighting themselves because she wants to agree. She's like gasping and she's crying. But then she's like, no, 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 no. That's not my experience. That's never my experience. So I think that's what it is. Like, again, she gets this trigger Mm -hmm. that allows her to almost like unmask for a second and then she pushes it back down she ends by saying the armitages are so good to us they treat us like family and then she scurries out so chris has outside where dean introduces him to like a bunch of people at once like this is joe jim jack (laughs) like so many people One of them asks about his experience as an African-American, which is another example of these awkward, subtly racist moments. But Logan is also standing in the circle. So Chris defers the question to Logan. He's like, I don't know, Logan, why don't you take this one? 
Logan answers in a very, very positive way. He's talking about how he has had such a lovely experience. He's so happy. He couldn't ask for a better life. Again, this over-exaggerated positivity. And Chris can't believe what he's seeing, so he takes out his phone to try to take a video, but he accidentally snaps a picture with the flash on. And the flash seems to break some kind of trance that Logan is under, and he starts yelling at Chris to get out. And of course, again, very Stafford lifestyle, the people at the party who are in on something big start to try to pacify Logan and get him out of the picture before he can say anything else. So later, they're all kind of sitting around and Dean explains that Logan had a seizure, which was triggered by the flash on Chris's phone. Logan then emerges from Missy's study after Missy's help and is reset back to quote unquote normal, which was, I guess, normal for Logan, apologizes to Chris for his behavior and then exits the party. So Rose is like, you know what, I'm going to take Chris on a walk while the rest go to play bingo. But as Chris is talking to Rose about how he thinks that her mother got into his head, what Logan had wasn't a seizure, he has to go. We see that instead of them playing bingo, there is a silent auction with Chris's portrait behind Dean as he is auctioning off Chris, but we don't know in what capacity but we come to find out that Jim, the blind art dealer, is the winner of the silent auction. But again, we don't know the context as to what exactly he's winning quite yet. Still away from the crowd, Chris and Rose are chatting about Chris's mother's death, about how he just sat frozen for hours while he waited for her to come home. And he says he carries guilt because he found out later that she had survived the initial hit. And he feels like there could have been time for him to alert someone and possibly save her. And after, of course, this very tearful heart to heart, they have a beautiful kiss. She says that they should go home. She's agreeing to Chris's earlier request to leave and go back to the city. They'll just make something up and get out of this place. And he says that he loves her. Hmm. So as they walk back to the house, everyone is leaving. Jeremy is standing on the porch plucking his ukulele very ominously. Walter, Georgina, Missy, and Dean are all like smiling at them very unnaturally as they re-enter the house. Chris is then in the room packing his stuff and he ends up texting a picture of Logan to Rod and Rod immediately calls him and says that that's Dre, Andre, we know him. But he pretty much is saying, dude, listen, he wasn't himself. He's like, you gotta get the fuck out of there. And then his phone dies. So Chris is like to Rose, listen, we need to go right now. She's like, okay, I'll get my bag. And as Rose leaves the room, he notices a small crawl space door in the bedroom open, which I think he noticed the night that he was having the bad dream anyway. Like mm. it just kind of seems like it's been this like a little ominous thing. So he's looking and there's a box in there and he's looking at old photos of Rose. But as he flips through them, he notices that there's multiple old photos of Rose with multiple other black men and Georgina. Mm -hmm. And this is notable because Rose had told Chris that he was the first black man that she had ever been with. And the context of a lot of these photos look very romantic in nature. Couples holding each other, arms around each other, holding from the back. Again, very romantic poses. And obviously, Georgina being in there and Georgina being now a part of the help for their family is obviously very concerning to him. Walter is also in there, too. 
I didn't see Andre in there though. And that was some- No, because it's implied later. He's the one that got got in the beginning of the movie. Well, no, I know that Andre got got in the beginning of the movie, but that makes me wonder why he was kidnapped versus the Rose bringing home scheme. I think at some point the dad makes a comment about Rose's methods versus Jeremy's methods. So like Rose's method is to seduce, Mm. but Jeremy, he doesn't have the same method. You know, he's much more violent, physically violent. He's just going to go out and kidnap them. Right. Okay. That makes sense. He puts the photos away as Rose re-enters, asking if he's ready to go. So as they descend the stairs, Rose can't find the car keys, which I'm thinking about this moment so differently now because no wonder Chris didn't just grab her bag. He can't drive. So anyway, Rose can't find the keys. Chris, you know, is reminding her to find the keys, find the keys, because when they get downstairs, the family starts asking questions. Where are you going? What are you doing? And Jeremy is menacingly holding a lacrosse stick like a bitch. And Dean starts asking what Chris's purpose is. Again, kind of like getting this meta highbrow air about him. Rose still can't find the keys. We're feeling this mounting tension. And then Chris starts yelling at Rose to find the keys. Jeremy takes a swing at him with the stick. And then Rose reveals that she has the keys, but she can't give them to him, babe. Allison Williams in The Art of Deception. The rug is pulled out. She's been in on it the whole time. And now the whole family is against him. Chris tries to run, but Missy pulls some hypnosis shit and stops him by clinking her little teacup. He falls to the ground. They take him to the basement. And as he is fading out of consciousness, we hear them conversing about him. Rose mentioning, he was one of my favorites as it fades to black. So meanwhile, Rod can't reach Chris. It's been a couple days. Chris still isn't home. He's growing concerned about where his friend is. So Rod goes to the internet and he starts searching for Andre, the guy, of course, that had just seen Chris at the party. But he finds an article that months prior, Andre had gone missing. Okay. And so he is definitely tipped off that something is wrong now. Back at the house, Chris is tied up in the basement. He wakes up facing a taxidermied deer head and he tries to escape his bindings. But then this vintage TV set turns on and starts playing in front of him. And that's where we meet granddaddy Roman Armitage, who is mentioned several times throughout the movie. He's on the screen and he's giving a spiel about how if you're watching this, you've been chosen because of your physicality, your capabilities. The tea cup pops up on the screen. There's a recording of the stirring and Chris is knocked back out again via hypnosis. Back to Rod. He goes to a police station and explains the situation, but he is not heard. This is another kind of funny scene where at first the officer listening to Rod seems like she's really invested in the story and brings in her other partners to listen, but then they all break out laughing together. (laughs) Poor Rod. So he decides he's going to keep doing some researching and thinking on his own. And he decides to call Rose. And I don't know at this point if he's suspicious of Rose or if it's kind of going back to that nice established friendship that they had in the beginning. Like he's hoping that she can give him some genuine input, but he calls her and she picks up. And when she picks up, she says, Chris, as if to say like, is this Chris? I've been looking all over for him. They have a conversation. No, Rose hasn't seen Chris in two days. She mentions that he had left in a cab. And Rod asks what cab company Chris used to leave, but she can't give him a name. Her story is starting to flounder a little bit. Rod is onto her shit. 
he puts her on hold momentarily so he can record her. But when he picks up the phone again, she seems to know. She starts talking into the phone about how she knows what he wants. He wants to get with her. He's always wanted to sleep with her. And of course, Rod gets so angry that he hangs up because any kind of recorded information he could have hoped to find to prove to law enforcement that they need to investigate, like she fucked it all up by being a big liar. So meanwhile, Chris wakes up again. And now Jim, the person who quote unquote purchased Chris at auction, comes on the TV, but this time it's live. It's not a Granddaddy Roman recording. It's Jim. And there's an intercom in the room for Chris to talk into in response. Jim takes him through the phases of a surgery that he is going to go under. Phase one has already been done, which is hypnotism. Phase two is pre-op. And then phase three is transplantation. And this is a procedure called coagulation where neurosurgeon Dean is going to take some piece of the brain out of Jim insert it into Chris's brain, and then that will give Jim control over Chris's body. So essentially, these two consciousnesses will have to kind of coexist, but Jim's will be dominant, and he will be able to reap the physical benefits of Chris's healthy body. Very much mean slavery. Yeah. I mean, even the fact that he was put off at auction and Mm -hmm. it's the idea that Jim is going to be driving the business and going to be in control, but it's going to be off the benefit of Chris's black body. Mm -hmm. And he tries to say it has nothing to do with race. He wants something deeper. He wants Chris's eye. I think that it's really interesting, like this idea of Chris being an artist, like I feel like is intentional. His existence as this very creative spirit being taken advantage of. And we saw that a little bit too in the Stepford Wives. In the original, Joanna is an artist as well. Like the idea of these creative souls being taken over. There has to be something intentional there. And I don't know exactly why that choice might have been made, but I feel like there has to be some rationale for that somewhere. Anyway, Jeremy comes down with his little scrubs on to fetch Chris's body for surgery. He has been knocked out again by the sound of the teacup. But... Chris gets up and knocks Jeremy across the head and then pulls some cotton out of his ears, which he had gotten from scratching at the armchair. So he plugged his ears so he wouldn't hear and he gets Jeremy nice and knocked out. Chris then heads down the hallway to the operating room where Dean is about to perform the surgery. We can see that Jim is already under and already sliced into. Dean comes out into the hall looking for Jeremy and as he looks, Chris runs at him full speed with the taxidermied buck and impales him. So it's cool, like the deer mount mounts Dean. But also I'm thinking about your Bambi comment. This is like Chris is a man. Yeah, Chris grew up and can protect his family now. And in the process of this whole situation, knocks over a candle so things start catching on fire. Upstairs, Chris has made it to the main floor and makes eye contact with Missy. She's like on one side of her study. Chris is standing in the hallway and the teacup is sitting on the coffee table, like perfectly equidistant from both of them. So we have like the freeze and then run grab moment. Chris beats her to the teacup and smashes it on the floor. She is able to grab a mail opener from the table and she tries to stab him, but ah, oh, He puts up his hand to block and she stabs through his hand Mm. in these, oh, these hand impalement moments are so visceral, but he is able to fight her off, overpower her and kill her. 
But surprise, just when you think three out of four are down, Jeremy is actually not dead and he's alive. So he confronts Chris in the foyer of the house, tries to get him, but Chris is able to overpower and kill him. So anyway, now we are really, truly down three out of four. But meanwhile, Rose is upstairs in sort of a comic juxtaposition, listening to the I Had the Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing on her like (laughs) Walkman and looking up hot guys on the internet, presumably doing her homework for whatever poor guy she's going to snare next and bring home. Chris has grabbed the car keys and gotten into the car. He is making his getaway, but all of a sudden Georgina runs out in front of the car and Chris hits her going pretty fast. Obviously, he's very shocked. This is paralleling not only the deer scene, but what we know about his mother's death. And he decides to get out of the car, put her in the passenger seat and leave with her. Rose now has caught on to the fact that something is amiss because she heard the impact of the vehicle outside. She goes to the front door sees what's happening and whispers grandma which is like what no so is this the grandma in the body of georgina rose goes back inside grabs a gun meanwhile grandma georgina has come to in the car and starts freaking out at chris for ruining her house She starts attacking him from the passenger seat and in the commotion he crashes the car and georgina is instantly killed Maybe like a minute or two later, not much longer, Chris comes to and an armed Rose with Walter gets to Chris. We know now, like we learned that Walter is actually possessed or inhabited by Roman, granddaddy Roman. So the grandparents who we thought were dead are very much alive inside the bodies of these two folks. Chris, thinking quickly and just in time, uses the flash on his phone to neutralize Roman, which allows Walter's consciousness, like the real Walter, to regain control of his body. And he is able to take Rose's rifle. He thinks fast and pretends that he's still Roman in control, but he tells Rose to give him the rifle, but it's really like Walter's true consciousness in control. And he turns and shoots her in the stomach before shooting and killing himself. Rose seems to be dead, but she then awakens and tries to love bomb Chris into sparing her. Chris begins to strangle Rose, but he can't go through with it. He finds himself unable to kill her. And then we see police lights and sirens approaching. Rose oh, starts to cry out for help. This is a scene very much paralleling, again, that officer scene in the beginning. This is another scene that, you know, speaks to the, like, political awareness of this movie with existing conversations. In the relationship between Black men and law enforcement, there is true anxiety in this moment. However... The vehicle stops, <laughs> and we see the driver's side door open, and there's like an airport security logo. And we know that Rod has arrived because Rod works as a TSA. TS motherfucking A. Mm-hmm. We are so happy to see this man. We have another comedic I told you so moment from Rod. Chris asks, how'd you find me? And of course, we have the iconic I'm TS motherfucking A. We <laughs> handle shit. And then Chris gets in the car and Rod is able to drive him and Chris away to safety. And that is the movie. This ending, at least. Yes, this ending. So, oh, should I get into the alternate ending now? Go for it. Okay, so let's do that. So there is an alternate ending. This information is from the rap article titled Jordan Peele Reveals His Alternate Get Out Ending, and it recounts a Jordan Peele interview discussing the topic. The alternate ending is essentially that instead of Rod showing up in his TSA vehicle, the police arrived at the house and arrest Chris for murdering the entire Armitage family. 
Peel comments, quote, in the beginning, when I was first making this movie, the idea was, okay, we're in this post-racial world, apparently. That was the whole idea. People were saying, we've got Obama, so racism is over. Let's not talk about it. That's what the movie was meant to address. Like, look, you recognize this interaction. These are all clues if you don't know that racism isn't over. So the ending in that era was meant to say, look, you think race isn't an issue? Well, at the end, we all know this is how the movie would end right here. End quote. But when he realized that the conversation around racism was changing in America in light of the murders of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, he decided to give fans a more hopeful ending. Quote, it was very clear that the ending needed to transform into something that gives us a hero, that gives us an escape, gives us a positive feeling when we leave this movie. There's nothing more satisfying than seeing the audience go crazy when Rod shows up, he said. I love that it's Rod. I just love that it's Rod. But like, there was still the moment for me, you know, when the police light showed up and it's like, in any other movie, you'd be like, oh, good. Mm -hmm. But in this movie, it's like, oh, fuck. Like the feeling, we already felt it. It ended up being overshadowed by something much more positive. And I think that moment is all we really needed because like, we all knew that our like stomachs were sinking when we saw the police lights come up instead of being hopeful. And I think that's the point. Like the fact that we all still had that visceral reaction of knowing that in any other movie, that's the sign you want to see. Like I'm thinking at the end of Ready or Not, when Grace has killed the entire Leto Mas family, or at least it looks as that, and she is just sitting there smoking a cigarette and like waiting to be approached. But Chris, who is standing over the body of his bleeding out girlfriend, and it's a white woman screaming for help, and he obviously looks uninjured and looks as though he has caused some harm, like he knows no matter what he says, what it's going to look like and what the narrative is going to be, especially if Rose is there to corroborate that. Yes. And she is such a convincing actress. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's get into some more post-plot trivia. I was telling Shay before we started recording that I feel like Get Out is kind of like an unintentional finale to discussing a lot of themes and patterns that we've been exploring, not only in the science fiction-themed April, but also with some of the gothic tropes that we've been exploring over these last couple episodes. This is focusing specifically on the idea of the sunken place and reimagining gothic tropes from Aviva Briefel's essay, Live Burial, the Deep Intertextuality of Jordan Peele's Get Out. So in her essay, Briefel discusses Peele's use of gothic tropes and how his film adapted said tropes to represent racial oppression. I will be discussing some of her points, but the whole essay is definitely worth reading, of course. The first trope Briefel mentions is the sunken place as an interpretation of the gothic live burial trope. While Chris is not literally buried alive like we would see in classic tales like Edgar Allan Poe's Fall of the House of Usher, he's metaphorically and spiritually buried alive by microaggressions and systemic racism. Briefel argues that modifying this trope is used, quote, not only as a labor of adaption, but also of excavation, as Peel compels his viewers to delve into these earlier narrative spaces and witness how their privilege of white female experience depends on silencing racial trauma. There may be no better way to describe the fate of Black characters whose identities are entombed within the white subjects who have taken over their minds and bodies. In the moment, if we're looking at Rose and Chris just as a baseline couple, her trying to talk him down and calm him down out of what he's experiencing, all these bad dreams seems normal. But when you put in the context that they are an interracial couple and we are following him around, we follow his perspective, we know that everything he's experiencing is the truth. She really is just silencing him the entire time. 
So it gets even bigger than that. So continuing on with this idea of representing the white female experience, modifying these themes of white female endangerment itself is reminiscent of what we discussed in our Women in Black episode a few weeks ago. We know that revitalizing gothic horror is often used as a platform for repressed voices, often white female voices. However, we can see Jordan Peele using the genre to do the same, but this time to represent voices of color in a racially oppressed America. Artistically, Peel is not the first to do this. I'm thinking of texts like Cain by Jean Toomer and the text that I mentioned in our Housewives episode called The Street by Anne Petrie and countless others use gothic elements to highlight racial oppression. However, Peel brings this genre adaptation to horror movies, which is a platform known for prioritizing female endangerment and subsequent empowerment, specifically that of white females, aka the final girl. Damn. I'm continuing. We're getting deeper. Briefel also mentions Joanna Russ's 1973 essay, Somebody's Trying to Kill Me and I Think It's My Husband. And this ties into what you were mentioning earlier about Rose kind of downplaying all the concerns that Chris mentions. Russ's essay discusses another gothic trope where a woman becomes unsure whether her husband, quote, loves her, hates her, is using her, or is trying to kill her. (laughs) So it's like, which one? I don't know. This trope breeds fear and a sense of dramatic irony, and Briefel discusses this trope in both the original Rosemary's Baby and the Stepford Wives films, and explains, quote, Russ's basic formula for the female gothic with a significant gender reversal also structures Get Out. Peel traces his film to the female gothic tradition, explaining in an interview that he, quote, followed the Rosemary's Baby Stepford Wives model of inching into this crazy situation and alongside justifying how the character is rationalizing staying. Holy shit. When Chris Washington, a young black photographer, goes with his white girlfriend, Rose Armitage, to her parents' house in the suburbs, he is overwhelmed by feelings of paranoia usually experienced by gothic heroines. He suspects that things are not right, that there is a buried secret in this familial enclave. In this case, the secret has less to do with gender than race, centered as it is on the Armitage family's horrific racial experiment. So Briefel connects these themes of live burial and the female endangerment under the umbrella of the female gothic in general. So like a woman in gothic literature with her character exploration of Missy and Rose. She writes, quote, in rewriting the female gothic, Peel targets his critique on the conventional heroines of the genre, white women endangered by a looming male presence. We have already seen his revisionary tactic at play in his representation of Missy Armitage, who first sends Chris into the sunken place. In contrast to the gothic heroine who discovers the perils of the home, Missy herself displays a dangerous domesticity. She weaponizes a teacup to hypnotize Chris and turn nurturing into manipulation, luring him by bringing up the trauma of his mother's death. I think my favorite sentence ever is she weaponizes a teacup. (laughs) Okay. This is continuing a quotation. Even more than her mother, Rose embodies Peel's appropriation of the female gothic. In another context, Rose, whose name aligns her with Rosemary of Rosemary's Baby, would be the young endangered woman of the genre. In Get Out, however, she occupies the role of gothic villain, with the important difference that she is a woman and does not appear suspicious until late in the narrative. While the film directs us to mistrust her parents and brother from the beginning, it delays revealing Rose's complicity. 
When it exposes her, it does so through a modification of the Bluebeard folktale, Charles Perrault's proto-feminist gothic story of a monstrous husband and the dead wives he stows away in his closet. The closet. The closets. She also writes, quote, Although Rose had assured Chris that he is her first black boyfriend, he stumbles upon a closet (laughs) that conceals photographs of her multiple African-American lovers, all of whom have presumably fallen victim to the family's racial experiment. The scene recreates the recognizable moment in gothic narratives when a heroine opens a door to discover the terrible secret concealed therein. Jane Eyre finds Bertha in the attic. Rosemary goes through her linen closet and realizes it connects to the Castavet's apartment. And Joanna opens a door in the men's association and encounters her robotic double who proceeds to murder her. Just as viewers may be unwilling to abandon the trope of the gothic heroine, Chris resists accepting Rose's villainy. Even after his incriminating discovery, he continues to trust her, urging her to help them get out of the house as quickly as possible. In what has become one of the most memorable scenes of the film, Chris asks Rose to locate the car key so they can leave, and playing the role of victim, she desperately rifles through her bag, as if also wanting to escape her monstrous family. The scene culminates in a medium close-up shot of her clutching her keys and telling Chris in a deadpan voice, you know I can't give you the keys, right babe? The key and get out defamiliarizes gothic tropes. Rose seizes what in another narrative might be the tool of her oppression and proudly broadcasts her complicity with her parents and brother while the male hero is dragged into the basement to find his place alongside her sunken lovers. What I find so interesting about Rose is we never learn enough about her to empathize with her and half the time I'm forgetting about her, if that makes sense. They play it so well in the sense that everybody else seems so much more threatening and they paint Rose as this nothing character almost for half of the time where she's just like, oh, babe, it's fine. Oh, babe, my family. And you kind of expect her to just be like some gruesome kill to add to the kill count. But she is the mastermind. She's the main villain. She's doing the research. She got him there and is stranding him there. What you said makes me think about the fact that she has done this before several times. And I'm wondering if part of her unremarkability is the fact that probably everything she's saying is a script to her. Mm -hmm. Rose is so removed from this, not only of her own mentality, but because of the sheer amount of time she has experienced it. So her unremarkability is really just practice. Yeah. Wow. Which I think could also be symbolic of something in itself. She's desensitized almost. And especially like watching her doing her homework upstairs, you know, listening to Dirty Dancing. It's like she enjoys this. Like this is a job. This is a script that she's reading. It makes me wonder where all the other dudes in the photographs are because we only ever really meet three. Well, they were auctioned off. But like they're not still part of this like insular community. I guess not. That's a good point. I don't know. Maybe it's referencing something about a larger community. Maybe not everybody can make it to every auction. And if you think about it, you know, we're told that this is an annual event. Mm -hmm. But Andre, aka Logan, was kidnapped, I think the article said maybe three to five months ago. So this isn't something that happens once a year. Like, we don't know how often this happens. This could be a very frequent thing. So maybe the people that come aren't just all the people in the community. It's just who is available that day. But there's always one right around the corner. Mm -hmm. So Peel's film also includes elements of science fiction in its creation, despite not being technically classified in the genre. And this is something Isaiah Lavender III argues in his essay, Getting All of It, on Jordan Peel's Get Out political horror. 
Lavender writes, quote, I concede Get Out's horror roots even as they are steeped in science fiction tropes. Any plot that involves body swapping comes across as science fiction. In this case, Peel taps into racial science, pseudoscientific beliefs of a supposed black physical superiority measured against hypothetical white mental superiority. Through the fictional and fiendish coagula procedure, a brain transplant mixed with hypnotherapy, whereupon rich white folks inhabit black bodies and achieve a kind of immortality, deeply ironizing the United Negro College Fund slogan, quote, a mind is a terrible thing to waste, that is, a white mind, not a black one. In fact, Peel equally taps into the dark side of American history, its psychic racial wounds, by utilizing a Morrisonian rememory to discomfort his audience in the weaving together of the past and the present to affect our sense of reality. Peel's astounding creativity blends madness and clotting. Madness in the sense of evoking the insane Roman emperor Caligula and signposting this insanity through the Armitage family patriarch and inventor of the procedure named Roman and clotting in the sense of the coagulation of body matter congealing into an ever thickening mass like a cancer. Sticking white brains in black bodies is the stuff of science fiction and horror along the lines of a classic film such as Don Siegel's Invasion of the Body Snatchers and its many imitations. To pull this premise off, Peel coagulates themes of alien abduction, the pocket universe of the sunken place, black marginalization, and body swapping with a contemporary silent slave auction, where the affluent whites use color-coded bingo cards to literally bid on Chris's black body as a site to transfer their own minds. <sighs> I mean, does Jordan Peel sleep? I don't know. <laughs> They're like the layers, like all of this genre, like reinvention. And there's like four genres. There's like a million genres being reinvented. Also, this history being evoked, not only United States history, but again, this connection to, I think, Caligula is so interesting. But to give just a little bit more perspective on the volume of literature that already exists on this 2017 film, Lavender also spends most of his essay commenting on some of his favorite pieces from the works collected by Dawn Keatley titled Jordan Peele's Get Out Political Horror. So literally, this woman, Dawn, has 18 contributors in her collection that literally comment on different theories and aspects surrounding the movie Get Out. There's connections to other films, genres, and things like that. And this collection spans across 16 chapters in two parts. So this is like already something where somebody has collected literature on this movie and put it out as a two-part collection. Mm -hmm. So like I have with this little bit of information started to scratch the surface of all the things that exist out there in this movie. You know, that's part of the reason why it's so amazing. Jordan Peele is a mastermind and he did so much to completely change the genre. Well, the horror movie genre, what a horror movie is, and also pre-existing genres, just challenging everything that already exists, which is really the sense that I'm getting from the literature I was able to read. I mean, there's nothing in this movie that's unintentional. Like, even going back to the nervous habit that Chris has of scratching, we see this first as almost like a tick where he is trying to stop smoking and how quickly it was established that he has a smoking problem with just Rose throwing the cigarette out the window. 
which then leads to Dean calling him out that he needs hypnosis, which then brings back to him scratching being nervous that his mom wasn't getting home when he was a kid, to him scratching at the chair, to him then continuing to scratch at that chair and use the cotton in the chair to break him free. Like that five scene through line and how they were all done so subtly. And then packing that with the significance of cotton is just insane to me. And even thinking about this procedure that they're talking about, obviously this coagula procedure, the Roman thing, like these are all things I'm hearing for the first time. Even just thinking about something like Henrietta Lacks and that whole storied history of Henrietta Lacks' cancer cells being used to further biomedical research to this day, how the continual use of black bodies is disenfranchised and is used without the proper credit being given. Or consent. Or con- Yes, obviously, or, which is obviously very present in this film as well, like taking over the entire consciousness of these black bodies for their youth, their vitality. Because I was even thinking too, the fact that Marianne, the grandmother and Walter, the grandfather, like they're old, like, do they want to be chopping wood and like cleaning about the house? Or is it now that they just have this younger vessel to do it that they're just kind of continuing life as they always did if they had never aged? And that's kind of the point. Yeah, it makes me think of the push mower. The old man wants his old-fashioned little push mower that he knows how to use. And even the fact that Marianne's like, oh, like, I unplugged your cellular device. Like, Mm -hmm. everything is so antiquated because they're not being replaced. They're just transferring their consciousness. Oh, my God. Logan, he's not just like a new side piece for that older woman. He's probably her husband. I just realized that. Oh, yeah. No, that's her existing husband that was probably dying and frail. And it makes me think of that horny housewife scene, too, where we see that man in a wheelchair on oxygen (gasps) and it's like, looks nice, doesn't he, babe? Meaning like, don't you want him? Uh Because you're going to die soon. So many layers. So many layers. Also, like, just a great movie. (laughs) No, it's a great movie. And it's weird because our lady in this movie is obviously, like, the main antagonist. She's the main villain. I do think it's interesting that we spend the entire time in this movie not knowing who the villain is until we do. Or not expecting the main big bad to be who she is until she's revealed. Again, I just can't trust Allison Williams at this point. I don't know. (laughs) Anytime Allison Williams plays somebody, I just can't trust her. I'm sorry. I don't blame you. I understand why you were so on edge when we talked about Megan. I know. And I she wasn't even bad in Megan. She wasn't was, even bad. But I was expecting, I was expecting the heel turn because she does it so fucking well. <laughs> she does it in the perfection too. It's just like, damn. Well, as always, if you haven't followed us on Instagram yet to follow what we're planning in the future, answer polls, see updates, please do that. You can find us at The Horrors Podcast. Also, feel free to email us with any requests, questions, things like that at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.